On June 28, 1969, at 1.20 a.m., eight officers of the New York City Vice Squad joined forces to do a usual police raid at the Stonewall Inn. However, this time, the raid didn't go as planned. One of the reasons is that the paddy wagons took longer than expected to arrive. The crowd of both released patrons from the bar and bystanders on the street began to swell as the night went on. The cops became so afraid that they refused to leave the bar for a good 45 minutes. The last straw came when a butch lesbian in handcuffs was escorted to the waiting paddy wagon several times. She escaped repeatedly. The woman, fought with four of the cops, sparked the crowd to fight when she shouted, Why don't you guys do something? When a cop picked her up and heaved her into the back of the wagon, the crowd went berserk. It was at that moment that the scene became explosively violent. Storm DeLaverie was born in New Orleans. DeLaverie's father was white and wealthy. Her mother was African-American and worked as a servant for his family. Growing up biracial, she was bullied and harassed by both black and white kids. But being both biracial and androgynous, she could pass for white or black, male or female. And she was even picked up twice on the streets by police who mistook her for a drag queen. Legend has it that Marsha P. Johnson is the hero of Stonewall, but no one ever mentions that Storm, another trans person of color, was the person who's the real hero. I met Shree in front of the Stonewall in June of 2015, the day that the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage was legal. Christopher Street was a wild celebration, for New York Pride was that same week. Recently, in a phone interview, I asked Shree about how long he had been working at the Stonewall. On and off, 54, 55 years. After the rebellion, I went to Julius's and the Ninth Circle, then back to Stonewall. I worked for the I, I worked for the boys of the mafia. I worked for junior mafia, and I worked for normal people. So, how, were you there the night of the Stonewall riots? Believe it or not, I was in there dancing to Lindy with my friends Charlie and Frankie, and uh, we heard the screaming and carrying on, and then we heard a drag queen that we knew. Well, not a drag queen. Uh, a Spanish boy named Gypsy always wore opera gloves because he said a lady should never leave the house without gloves. And we heard him scream, don't touch me. My husband's a cop. And that's we knew in another riot. But we didn't know it was going to be the riot of all riots because, God, I went to jail 10, 12, 14 times just for being in a gay bar. How old were you when the Stonewall happened, when the riots happened? I was 30. And all my friends were in their early 20s, mid-20s. I was always the oldest person because I came out late. <laughs> Not that well, I came didn't... out late. I was gay, didn't know it, but I never knew there were gay bars that existed. We hung out in men's rooms and in movie houses and train stations. So you hung out around 42nd Street and did that kind oh, of yeah. stuff? Oh, yeah. If I got there before noon, it was 25 cents to get into the theater. Were you working at the Stonewall? Was it just off the night of the, the riot? or No, I was in there dancing that night. Because uh, my friend Johnny was his last night there, and he was going to Fire Island, and we all went to support him. What kind of people went to the Stonewall in those days? Men and women, straight and gay. You know, we had a few straight friends, so mostly girls. That And uh, we did the line dances. So you dance with a girl, the, you know, the cha-cha, the mambo, the merengue, the, uh, the stroll, all the other dances, the twist. You did with anybody. But when it came to a slow dance, if you if you dance a slow dance with a girl, everybody would have question marks over their heads. 
Do you remember what you loved to dance to at that time? What songs? Well, I my favorite one of my favorite singers, and you know, Edith Piaf wrote "No Regrets," and then mm-hmm. the other side of the record was "Me Lord," and that's this is the '60s, and we actually danced to "Me Lord." But uh, what's it, Buddy Holly songs? We danced to Lindy Hop. We did the Cha Cha. You know, they they actually had uh, remember we had no DJ. It was all jukebox, and they had a little of everything on the jukebox. Seventy-eight, six plays, six plays for a quarter, five cents each. Then it came to seventy-fives, and then digital, and now everybody has a DJ. Did you, did you get arrested that night? Were you one of the ones that got arrested? No, not that night. We were very lucky. Uh, we were there was like five or six of us, and one of us was a name guy, my Alfred Gregory Cullen, and the cop recognized Gregory. He was a Catholic priest at the time, and. That wouldn't have been great in 1969 if a Catholic priest was caught in a gay bar. So Charlie let some of us sneak out. He was a neighborhood cop. The, the raid was police headquarters, the vice squad, everything. He came in to see what was going on and recognized Gregory. And then we were, Gregory left, and we all stayed outside watching the mayhem and bottles and rocks being thrown at each other, police cars being set on fire. Once I was asked, was I afraid? And I said, hell no. I was a goody two-shoe kid all my life, and there I am throwing rocks, bottles, and setting garbage cans and things on fire. I was having the time of my life. Did you go back the next night or any of the other nights when it was still going we, on? We, we went back until we saw all the TV cameras and everything. And my family, we're Russian Orthodox, which is a high version of Catholic. My family didn't know anything about my lifestyle, so I had to be very, all of us, Charlie, the Italian kids, yeah, we know for fact, like Charlie Pisano, Frankie Ficarello, if their parents found out they were gay, they were sick Italians, they would say, I have no more son, my son's dead. So we didn't, we ran back to a restaurant that we hung out in called Mama's Chicken Ribs. And, uh, and where I, I, worked, I worked there part-time, too. And uh, when we got off work, we'd all go to one of the gay bars, and we were hanging out in Stonewall that night. No, I have to ask you this question for the kids. Did you know uh, Marsha or Sylvia? We knew Sylvia. Sylvia was a drag queen then. She wasn't trans at all. She was a drag queen. I could know, dress like a boy, but it was would do drag. And Marsha was a street kid. A friend of mine, uh, Randy Willard, he, he had a store, and he took Marsha B. Johnson in to live with him because she was a street kid. They didn't let her in bars because unless it rained and she was getting wet or snowing, but they told her not to get, you know, friendly with people. And uh, she wasn't there at the night of the riots. For years, people said Marsha B. Johnson threw the first stone. And she finally admitted just before, a year before she died, she wasn't even there that night. I have a friend that uh, lives at 165 Christopher. Yeah, she's like, we were around the corner drinking. We heard something going on. And she said, oh, that's just those girls. They're all upset. They had no idea what was really happening. Yeah, like I've been enraged before when when I travel the world speaking. I the State Department sends me to Argentina, Kosovo, Ukraine, Serbia to help them with their gay rights movements. I always say I was I was at the right place at the wrong time, or the wrong place at the right time. How did how did it change you with being there that night? Did it make you more of an activist or no? No, I, well I was always part of charities. 
But, it, it, you know, we even denied going, hanging out there. When people say, we well, are at Stonewall now, we, for years, we don't, everybody we knew, nobody could care less about the Stonewall. Up until, well, the 25th anniversary, they dragged me to the United Nations where I had to make a speech on the 25th anniversary of Stonewall, 1994. And that was it. All of a sudden, Obama names it, and there's an inaugural beach, and we become one of the most famous historic bars in the world. And then he made seven and a half acres of the village, which includes Stonewall, a national park. Nobody expected so it. It was a bar that got raided. Almost every bar in New York got raided. And it wasn't raided because it was gay people. It was raided because they forgot to pay the police off. When you paid the cop, no raids. I wrote a story about it called Brown Bag Friday. That's where the cop car would go around the neighborhood to all hang out to homosexuals and lesbians and take a little coffee container or paper bag with a few bucks in it, go back to the precinct, they split it up. So it sounds like New Orleans. When we walked up Christopher Street on our way to Stonewall, just before the raid, people would holler out, tree, does your father work? And I'd holler, hell no, he's a cop. And the cops would give us dirty looks because there's always cops on the corners. And there were cops like Charlie, the Charlie that came in. He was a good cop. I mean, when we went outside, and I'd say, Charlie, it's four in the morning, I spent all my money. i tell you how long ago it was. I need 35 cents to go home. He gave me the 35 cents. Everybody loved Charlie. And Whitey on 6th Avenue, everybody hated him. He loved whacking you in the back of the leg with a nightstick. Did you hang out on the street? We used to walk from Perry Street. There was a bar there called New York something. I can't think of it. And then we walked down Greenwich Avenue, and then we go to 6th Avenue, turn on 6th Avenue to Waverly Place, then turn around and walk all the way back to Perry Street all night long, leaning against cars. You stop and talk to a few people. You keep walking back and forth, or you sit on a stoop, a bunch of us, and the neighborhood would complain because we were at 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning, a cop car would come by and chase us off the stoop. And then nothing was locked in the village. We actually tiptoed on the roof of some of those old brownstones and slept on the roof. It was, yeah, it was a different time. A lot of fun. Had a knock on the door. You had to look both ways to pray to God. Nobody sees you going into a bar. You could be from Ohio and you still look both ways in case somebody from Ohio that knows you just happened to be there. It was that kind of paranoia of people getting caught. When they were in bars, we go, they go, are they straight? What are they doing in here? But they were gay. Nobody was as flamboyant as everybody is now. Now, y'all, if you know me, you know that I'm a firm believer in dream boards. It's something that has always worked for me. I've manifested things like moving to New Orleans, buying a condo, moving to New York, meeting my idol, Diana Ross, and having my art selected for a juried show at the Ogden Museum. Now, let's go back to an important date for our story. On June 29, 1967, Jane Mansfield was killed instantly when the car that she was riding in struck the rear end of a trailer truck on Highway 90, just east of New Orleans, Louisiana. Jane had just finished her gig at Gus Stevens Supper Club in Biloxi and was on her way to New Orleans for a television appearance. Jane, her two adult male companions, Ronald B. Harrison, the driver, and Samuel S. Brody, Jane's lawyer boyfriend, as well as Jane's two chihuahuas, Precious Jewel and Emerald, were all riding in the front seat and died in the crash. 
Luckily, Mariska, Miklos, and Zoltan, her children, and her two other chihuahuas, Dorothy and Cal, were riding in the back seat and were not injured. Hillary Hartman wrote to the British Consulate of Louisiana to ask if Dorothy and Cal survived. It seemed that Jane had forgotten to pay Hillary for the two chihuahuas when she left England. Let's take a streetcar tour to 3338 St. Charles Avenue in the city that care for God. It is now the home of the Fresh Market and once the former location of the Baltman Funeral Home. Before Wikipedia, yes, I said that. And one of the many things I read about Jane, I learned that Baltman took care of her body after the crash. When I was growing up in Livingston, I loved watching the film Suddenly Last Summer. I had no idea how that film would influence my life and my art. I discovered after moving to New Orleans that the characters in the house that Tennessee wrote about were based on the Baltman Mansion and its residences. The house is located in New Orleans at 1525 Louisiana Avenue and where the funeral home used to be. Now kids, before Six Feet Under or American Horror Story ever aired, I dated a mortician that worked at the Baltman Funeral Home. I was a very bashful 17-year-old from Livingston, Louisiana, and I was scared of the world. When he gave me two dozen pink roses on Valentine's Day, I wondered, did he take them from a dead person? Later in the year, he asked me for a date on Halloween with the people from his work, and they would pick me up in the company car. Now, y'all know I was raised Baptist and Pentecostal, so that meant riding in a hearse was purely of the devil. I broke it off, and I broke it off immediately. Now, I could probably handle it. So if y'all know any funeral directors out there named Sean, you tell him I'm available for my date in that hearse. A couple of years ago, when I opened Severio Gallery, located at 834 Charter Street, a block from Jackson Square, across the street lived an eccentrically dressed, pink-haired woman named, get this, Bethany Baltman. I asked Bethany if I could photograph the garden room at 1525 Louisiana. She said, only if I photograph drag queens and members of the New Orleans LGBTI community. So, when I began interviews for this podcast, I interviewed Bethany. Bethany is one of those people that I sometimes think is full of harsh shit. Fortunately, when I fact-checked, I have found she's been telling the truth. This interview is one of those times. Because it's gay pride. If somebody I wish was still with us and I want to keep him alive, and that was Bill Rushton, who was the managing editor at the View Correct Courier, which was a little alternative paper on Decatur Street in the French Quarter. Bill was always full of ideas. I knew him at Tulane, and this was in the late 1960s, and he was so unapologetically gay and flamboyant, brazen, and wonderful. I met him at a party. You know, nobody was gay or straight or whatever. And he came over to me and he said, is it true that you were at LSU and that you infiltrated the young Republicans to use as an anti-war group? And I went, yeah, I did that. And he went, well, then you ought to be a writer. You ought to come work at The Courier. He was a little bit older, but early 20. And one day he came into the paper. Now, the owner of the paper was the famous civil rights uh, publisher named Hotting Carter's son, Philip Carter. And Philip would sit at this desk in this really ratty building on Decatur. And he put his feet up on the desk. 
And Bill would come in with his ideas. And one day he came in and he was really flamboyant. And he said, Tulane Med School is hiring prostitutes to convert gay men. Luckily, Philip was an adult. And he looked at Bill and said, Bill, you have to get proof of that. We cannot run the story. Not going to happen. So I'm going to flash forward and say, on Amazon right now, there's a film called Hunting for Hedonia. If you look at it real closely, you will see the article Bill ended up doing about revealing this. Because nothing happened after it came out, Bill just could not accept that that was going to be the end. He revealed this was really happening. So he sent it to the New York Times. And the New York Times came, this doctor that looked a lot like Gregory Peck and people in New Orleans thought he was the most charming, great thing in the world. And they thought he was going to win the Nobel Prize for some really, actually very good work that he was doing. But he just went a little bit too far with it, which is deep brain stimulation for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder which are not mental illnesses, they're neurological. And he was one of the earliest people to die of AIDS. My interview with Tree happened the week after my interview with Bethany. I asked him if he knew anything about Heath. He had no idea about Dr. Heath, but he did tell me this. David, his mother put him through hell, an ice bucket, a nut facility. And he killed him. He committed suicide eventually. Yet, knowing you're born that way, there are still people that hate us, want to kill us, destroy us. And I love when the priest says that we're all made in the image of God, and God made us gay if we were born in his image, but yet they deny it. You know, the, the conservatives are trying to put us back before 69. I have so many couples, friends, not just that they're brand new people have been going 50, 20, 25 years together that adopt children. And I've never seen these kids so happy in their lives. They would have nothing if it wasn't for this a gay couple. Two dads or two moms. They're spoiled, rotten, because everybody loves them. And around the time that I was born in 1966, my brother suffered with what was then known as two nervous breakdowns. He could never accept his okayness when it came to his God of the Protestant religions. Every time we would go to church, we were told that we were going to hell just for being ourselves. So we both struggled with the issue of God loving us. Unfortunately, while my brother suffered with dementia brought on by the AIDS virus, he died still seeking God's acceptance and forgiveness. My next guest is Jim Meadows. Jim is a social worker who works at Crescent Care. Jim and I bond on our love for women singers like Dusty Springfield, Reba McIntyre, Bobby Gentry, and his favorite, Karen Carpenter. Currently, he works for No Age, which stands for New Orleans Advocates for LGBT Plus Elders, where he has been the director since 2016. In one of my Google holes, I found out that Jim and I also had something else in common. Well, my name is Jim Meadows. Uh, I'm a social worker by profession. Currently work for No Age, which stands for New Orleans Advocates for LGBTQ Plus Elders. I've been involved with No Age since 2015. I've been the director since 2016. I previously worked in geriatric psych hospitals, outpatient clinics. You were a student when you found out about HEAT? I was working in a geriatric psych hospital, but one of the patients there, I noticed a dent in the top of his head. 
I gathered the psychosocial history. He explained that he had been a patient of Dr. Robert Heath, who was the founder of Tulane's neuropsych department and was with the university for many decades and had done some gay conversion experiments using psychosurgery. And I was just heartbroken for this guy. And as I looked into you know who this was and what had happened, I just became really outraged. At the time, I contacted throw this in there. Tulane's Neuropsych Alumni Association is the Robert Heath Society. And that that's true today. And it was true in 2011. I reached out to them. I expressed my outrage that they would name themselves and continue to name themselves after someone who, as I saw it, had done some real harm, not only to my client uh, at that hospital, but who knows how many other people. Um, I only got one response and it was a very defensive response. And he did a lot of really great things. I was his student and he was a wonderful man. I think he ended by saying, may God grant you peace. People will reach out to me about it because I talk about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm very interested in it and also interested in the secrecy around it that you know, is still there with Tulane. They don't grant access to his papers. They didn't at the time. And I don't believe they grant access to his papers today. Tilda Swinton just did a documentary called, I think it's Looking for Hedonia, and it's about heat. Well, they have film footage, so I don't know if that was in the archives, and they finally let it out. But they interview, I think, the head of the Tulane Department of Psychiatry. Well, that's, you know, I had not heard about that, Arthur. That's that's fascinating news to me. I, I'd, I'd love to hear more. It's the first I've heard of Tulane cooperating around anything about it. I wonder when that comes out so I can see it. It's out. It's on Amazon. You're kidding. <laughs> Amazon. I, bought, I bought it. I was like, I have to have it. You no, know, it was one of those Google holes where I found out you had talked about it. And then I was like, oh my God, somebody that I know. Yeah. It, it'll be interesting to to know what, what they were able to see. With what they're thinking now, because with people that are like with psychosis, it helped in a lot of way to stimulate the brain. So deep brain stimulation, something that's used, for example, in Parkinson's disease today. I think that Dr. Heath was a pioneer in what he was doing. It doesn't seem, though, that he maybe took into account what might happen down the road if one person died from having the the surgery. And other people had like brain infections. And the bottom line was he was treating something that it wasn't, it was nothing was wrong with them. Uh, he may have created something wrong. I now kind of see, though, Arthur, that I don't want to say that he was some kind of evil Dr. Frankenstein. I don't know. I didn't know the man. The people who knew him seemed to almost put him on a pedestal. He was probably a really complicated person. People who were coming to him, you know, saying, I, I don't want to be gay. Can you fix me? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, I can fix you. It's just kind of playing fast and loose with things to cut people's brain open just because they're attracted to the same sex. I'm glad that Tilda Swinton is doing something and people are looking into it now because it's one of those subjects that you could kind of dive into forever. You know, talking about medical ethics. When do you help someone? When do you make like a really radical medical decision? What are our own prejudices right now about, you know, how we treat people who are mentally ill and the authority that we give to to doctors as if they're, you know, gods? Uh, even today, uh, it, it's a it's a lot. I, I just something that struck me the most was like the comment was something about how many patients that came through charity and like his experiments could be numberless. Yeah, I, I don't I don't have any idea of what number, but it was over decades. I mean, I think his first, you know, experiments around uh, schizophrenia were in the 50s. I know he was doing the uh, gay conversion, at least into the 70s. 
homosexuality was removed from the, the DSM, which is sort of like the psychiatrist's Bible of how you diagnose a, a mental disorder. That wasn't uh, removed from that book till 73. So, I mean, so technically, he, you know, he was treating what was looked on at that time as a, a medical abnormality, a psychiatric uh, disorder. And as far as Charity Hospital, I mean, he, he also experimented on black men in uh, Angola prison. There's some suggestion that he was involved with the, the government's MK Ultra program, which was, you know, very secretive government operation to figure out how we can use LSD to hurt our enemies. And, and they looked into all kinds of drugs and brain experiments and brainwashing. It's way above my head, but there is some suggestion that he may have been a part of that, although I think he did deny it. So prisoners were fair game for experiments, you know, unwillingly. This leads me to my next couple of questions. Better yet, let me ask you this. Tell us what you do. Uh, approach that we have, we do trainings for healthcare providers, you know, cultural competence. So, for example, talking to a nursing home staff about why one of the residents might go back into the closet when they come into a nursing home. Maybe they're afraid of being bullied by their roommate. Stuff that administrators don't always think about. They think, well, this is New Orleans. The residents don't know if, if your staff are culturally competent. They don't know if they're homophobic. They don't know how they're going to be treated. So it might be safer to just not talk about that and to go back into the closet. We also about, you know, aging with HIV. We educate people who are working in healthcare that are going to come across older LGBT folks. And on the other hand, what we do is host socialization and educational events specifically for elders. Because, you know, if you're like me and, and you, you know, we moved to New Orleans from really rural, small towns. We might not have biological family here. Older gay people tend to get more isolated than older straight people because they don't have kids. We host these groups like Coffee Talk, Potluck, the book club, walking group. All of this is an attempt to give people a chance to make new friends, to kind of solidify the friendships they've made and just be part of the community. We, we have a great bar scene here in New Orleans, but it's, it's a bit of an alternative to that, you know, where we can you know, sit down, have a meal together and I love when we have young people, especially uh, student volunteers from the universities. That's always great to, to foster that kind of intergenerational support. 